Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey Geekscapists, welcome to our brand new Geekscape episode. I'm Jonathan London, your host. And if this is your first Geekscape episode, well, I like to sit down each week and talk to storytellers from the worlds of pop culture. Maybe it's video games or comic books or movies. This episode is no exception. I've got Richard Garfield, the creator of Magic the Gathering. Uh, We talked a couple days ago over Skype, um, and we mainly talked about his brand new game, Half Truth, which has a Kickstarter that launches today. I want you guys to go over to Kickstarter and search for Half Truth. There is a link in the notes for this episode. Uh, Richard did this in uh, in conjunction with Ken Jennings, who is a multiple like record holding brilliant jeopardy champion maybe you've heard of uh ken or followed him when he was racking up all the wins on jeopardy but they've got this brand new project and it seems pretty awesome um big thanks to my friend cat jones for setting up this interview it is over skype um i gotta tell you out of my own insecurities it took me a while to get into this conversation because over skype i can't really tell uh how the conversation is going early on i haven't really built up a rapport with the uh, with the uh, with the um, guest and i like doing my interviews in person so i can build that rapport as i set up the microphones and i can also gauge how the conversation is going or if they're still interested by seeing it in their face or uh hearing it in their voice and over skype without any visual cues it was kind of hard for me to get my bearings but all in all in the end i think you're going to find out that this uh i think you're going to discover that this interview was actually a lot of fun really good and i am blown away by richard i think he's awesome and you'll see where this conversation goes in a lot of places uh it was also fun to ask a couple of your questions from the geekscape forever facebook group if you're not a member of that group go on to facebook and join it geekscape forever um real quick there's been some big things that happened this week in geek we inter- we recorded this interview a few days ago but in the meantime they've announced a matrix 4 <laughs> okay <laughs> 20 years after matrix came out we're gonna have a new matrix movie uh, with carrie ann moss and one of the wakowskis and Keanu reeves my favorite thing about this announcement is that on his twitter jeff darrow uh, announced that he's going back to doing designs and things for uh, the new movie. So Jeff Darrow is a comic book artist uh, if, in in writer. If you guys don't know him, he does like Shaolin Cowboy and a bunch of really cool, uh, really intricate uh, comic books. Like if you look at the artwork on Jeff Darrow, uh, if, if you look at his artwork, it's just he gets down into like the minutia of what things look like. And I met him at New York Comic Con a few years ago. And I bought a Godzilla print off of him. And if you look at it, just Google Jeff Darrow. Uh, it's, it's Jeff with a G-E-O-F-F. And if you look at any of his artwork, you'll just see the level of detail he goes into. For something like a street corner 
even though Godzilla is destroying this city block, he'll get down to the the very small details of newspaper print that's blowing across the street, or uh, or people's expressions as they're as they're running away or in the crosswalk. So, or he really does a lot of uh, intricate work with technology and piping. So you could you can see kind of what he would do with the the Matrix because it was a bunch of technology and there's pipes and stuff running into people and. Uh, if you guys know The Matrix, which you probably should or do if you're listening to Geekscape, uh, Jeff Darrow's artwork had a lot to do with the look of that movie and the design of it, So, or that those three movies. So it's pretty awesome that he's back. Also, the biggest news, I think, is this like rift between Sony and Disney over Spider-Man, which I... You know what? I, the dust hasn't settled on this thing as of the recording of this intro. So... Um, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, is Tom Holland, is he is his Spider-Man not going to be in the MCU anymore? Supposedly, uh, Sony had an offer for the renewal of this um, sort of joint agreement between Disney and Sony. And uh, Kevin Feige was like, okay, supposedly, supposedly he wanted 50% uh, of the investment. And that meant Disney, even though Disney owns the merchandising rights to Spider-Man and, and makes the, the money off the toys, et cetera, et cetera, uh, they wanted to put some money into the movies to be part of the MCU so they can be part of the, a bigger part of the profit share. And Sony was like, we're not doing that. And really, why should they? They can continue to make Spider-Man movies without Marvel. I know the fans are going to kick about that because... They love the MCU Spider-Man stuff, and I do too. Um, but Sony made several movies before. They made Spider-Verse, which is great, and all of that was without Marvel's uh, uh, cooperation. That being said, it, it's a little—it's a little sad. I mean, if you watched Far From Home, you kind of saw that Spider-Man's going in some different directions. The world's kind of caving in on the guy, and we want to see how that ends up. We probably still will. Yeah, it was obvious from that uh, from Homecoming that they're setting up some version of the Sinister Six. Uh, we want to see the Sinister Six. I'd love to see the Sinister Six on on screen with this Tom Holland iteration of Spider-Man. But um, it will probably, as of now, be without a Happy Hogan or any of the Tony Stark stuff from the MCU. You probably won't see Thor, Captain Marvel show up. You're not going to see any of the MCU characters in the Spider-Verse now. And, it, and it, it'll probably just be Spider-Man versus the Sinister Six. And he gets to do his own corner of it um, as of now. Who knows what's going to happen? This is a pretty public uh, story that, that that broke. So usually when it's public like this, like when Amy Pascal's emails got released, <laughs> it usually usually somebody starts scrambling to fix it. A lot of fans are pretty upset about no Tom Holland in the MCU. And uh, you know what? Spider-Verse was great. And the one brilliant thing about Spider-Verse is it opens it up as a Spider-Verse. There's a multiverse. So uh, the Andrew Garfield Spider-Mans, they all count. The Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi Spider-Mans, those all count. Everything counts because it's a Spider-Verse. So... We can go forward on this Tom Holland thing. I think, geeks, we need to take deep breaths and accept that we might not see Spider-Man in the MCU movies anymore. We might not see a collaboration. We might in the future. But take a deep breath and just accept it's all a multiverse. 
we don't own these characters. We may feel we have ownership over them, but we legally do not own these characters. And uh, let's just stay open-minded about the movies we're going to get and the stories we're going to get. So stay open-minded, stay positive, and who knows? I mean, my dream might come true. And my dream, listen to this, is you bring back Sam Raimi, you bring back Tobey Maguire, Kristen Dunst. You keep them aged-appropriate. It's been 10-plus years since Spider-Man 3, (laughs) and maybe we've forgotten a little bit about Spider-Man 3, but now you have an older Peter Parker, an older MJ, and they have a daughter. And he's been Spider-Man for a while, and we've advanced in that universe, and this is just a one-off film that's a lot of fun, and you have the Sinister Six escape from prison where Spider-Man put them, and now they're together. They want revenge, and we got Spidey versus the Sinister Six, and he has a daughter, and he has something to really lose now, and um, and is the continuation and probably the finale of that storyline. And it all it all counts because of the Spider Verse. Remember that Geekscapist. Just keep an open mind with this stuff, or else you're it's really going to be a long road. <laughs> so when it comes to this stuff, the storytelling that's not in your control that we just love so much, just keep an open mind. And in the meantime, maybe go write some stories of your own. Maybe put the pen to the paper. And, uh, and do some of that. I've been doing a lot of that lately and feeling pretty good about it. I'm pretty excited about everything. Um, just want to let you guys know, uh, if, uh, I got a lot of great feedback from last episode that I did solo talking about my trip to Russia. Thank you guys so much. That means a lot because whenever I do a solo episode, I get pretty nervous and I think, hey, who's listening to this? I don't know. Who cares about what I did? Um, but the experience of going to Russia and telling comedy to a bunch of people uh, in a different language was insane, and I'm glad I jumped at the opportunity. Those opportunities don't come uh, along, and obviously there were a lot of, I had a lot of nervousness about a trip to Russia in our political climate, and, and you know, just period. I've never been, and I know maybe two people in that part of the world, um, but they invited me to go do comedy. I did it, and if you want to hear that story, it's on the last episode. This episode, though, is all about Richard Garfield. Um, Ken Jennings, you'll hear I accidentally call you Ken Jenkins. Um, sorry. <laughs> I was thinking of, uh, I, I teach a class on transmedia, and there's a, a scholar at USC called Henry Jenkins, and I read a lot of his stuff, and I recommend him to all of you who are interested in transmedia and new media. Uh, Henry Jenkins is awesome. And I wrote down in my notes, Ken Jenkins who's also the actor from Scrubs. So when I got to introduce uh, Ken's name, I read Ken Jenkins, and uh, that's a flub you're about to hear. Because without further ado, here's my conversation with Magic the Gathering creator Richard Garfield.
Hey Geekscapists, we're sitting here with Richard Garfield. A lot of you may know him as a household name because you're fans of Magic the Gathering. Um, I know him because I worked in a comic book store in the late 90s and Magic the Gathering was the thing. But uh, recently I reached out to you Geekscapists uh, on Facebook and asked uh, for questions to a- ask uh, Richard Garfield. And I started getting educated by all the brand new games that Richard's been making over the last 20 plus years. And he's got a brand new, coming out, uh, brand new game coming out. Uh, it's actually on a Kickstarter. And the game is called Half Truth. The Kickstarter launches today as of the posting of this episode. We recorded this episode a few days ago. But if you're listening to this episode, the Kickstarter is live. And it's a trivia game. So it's a little different than some of the things that you may know Richard for. But I'm guessing if you're a fan of Richard Garfield, it's along the same lines as far as entertainment and storytelling go. Um, So Richard, welcome to Geekscape. How are you? Hi. It's good to be here. (laughs) So talk to me a little bit about um, Half Truth. Maybe uh, your involvement with Ken Jenkins, because I believe that Jeopardy world champion and Guinness world record holder Ken Jenkins uh, is Ken, a part. Ken Jennings. Ken Jennings is a part of, uh, of Half-Truth. Um, talk to me a, a little bit about Half-Truth landed in your lap, because it, it, I mean, I'm correct in thinking that this is, this is kind of a new thing for you. Uh, well, I am interested in all of games and uh, mm-hmm. I'm constantly trying to stretch my boundaries and learn what other sorts of games are out there and what makes them appealing to their fans and try to uh, uh, get some of that uh, into my own design. So, uh, And I advise new designers, for example, to always play games out of their comfort zone and learn what makes them appealing to other players because uh, that will help them. So in that same spirit, after reading... Uh, Ken Jennings' book uh, Brainiac 10 years ago, uh, I was swept up in his love of trivia, and I realized I had been thinking about trivia in uh, an unenlightened way. Uh, I saw it as being something which was black and white, you either know something or you don't, and that it was dominated by players who were good at trivia, and uh, other people basically sat around and watched them show off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but but reading this, uh, I, I saw that it was humorous, that there was often uh, uh, gray areas where you had to make intuitive guesses, and that everybody knows something, uh, and uh, trivia gives them an opportunity to show that off. So I set about making a game which really brought out those characteristics. And is it just me, or you're kind of in this perfect storm, because... When you started uh, building card games and uh, in, in developing the, those systems in the 90s, it just went into a, a giant explosion that carried for the next 30 years. And now we seem to be in this surge of trivia where it seems like every restaurant, every bar has at least one trivia night on the schedule every week. Um, it's become this enormous social uh, experience in, in, I mean, and then on top of it, tabletop gaming has has had a huge resurgence in the last ten years. What do you think that is? Uh, what, what do you think the, the reason is for that? Uh, well, the there's all sorts of reasons that the resurgence could be, uh, uh, and it's something which uh, I certainly love. Uh, growing up, my selection of games were. Uh, far more limited than a day, and it's uh, so exciting uh, uh, browsing what's available and uh, getting people over to try out the new stuff these days. Uh, so one of the reasons is because I, I think the world has become more uh, interested in intellectual play. Uh, when I was uh, 
growing up, that was uh, less of a thing people did. People, There are more nerds around these days. Uh, you, you literally got beat up for it back in the day. <laughs> yeah, that, that is correct. Um, but I, I think there's also something uh, about uh, uh, people looking for uh, face-to-face interaction and uh, wanting the structure that games has to offer uh, these days where so much of our interaction is moderated by devices at a distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, uh, a lot of people grow up with now video games. Uh, they, they play digital games and are very comfortable with those. It's sort of a natural extension of that to play other sorts of games. Um, so so that, those are some of the reasons why uh, games uh, might be blowing up now. Yeah, I feel like there's de- definitely a deliberate pendulum swing, swing back uh, away from uh, the separate digital experiences. And the internet was supposed to bring us all together, and it kind of has made us isolated in a lot of ways where uh, we only really uh, echo chamber our uh, thoughts that are similar than ours, or we only really go on there to share our thoughts and and receive similar thoughts. But uh I feel like people, yeah, they're hungry for a face-to-face personal connection. They're hungry for an actual community, which is something that I think the Internet does a good job of touting, but not a very great job of delivering. Yeah, I think think that is uh, very true. And I I think the breadth of people you deal with these days uh, makes it so that... uh, uh, games having this understood structure makes it safer for people to interact in games, at least to get going. Uh, it's a, Games are a wonderful place for uh, people who are uh, a little bit uh, uh, cautious about their social abilities uh, mm-hmm. because, because it gives you that framework. Um, and in some ways, uh, I, I think this resurgent, while this is definitely uh, a, a high watermark, I think, for games, uh, it uh, the the time when I grew up in the in the sixties or and seventies uh, might have been a low water mark. Uh, my grandparents, for example, I think played a lot more games than my parents' generation did, uh, and I, I, I think that might have something to do with television sort of uh, uh, absorbing so much of the uh, baby boomers' uh, 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 time. Whereas before that, there were like mahjong parties and poker parties and bridge parties uh, uh people played games as a hobby more yeah I, and i think that's yeah that makes a lot of sense that tv kind of landed and took a lot of that evening social time uh, away from families and friends um when you were growing up i'm guessing Dungeons and dragons was the game uh when I was uh, in junior high, I discovered Dungeons and Dragons, and that was very close to when it was uh, first out, um, and uh, it blew me away. It's uh, I think that's what made me a game designer. Uh, uh, Dungeons and Dragons puts all players, and especially the person running the game, into a position of uh, of, of game design. They're really designing a game experience, uh, and uh, and so I think that was a large part of my training. What I'm fascinated by uh, in researching you, and we're both Penn Quakers, it turns out. Um, <laughs> what, what, yeah, we are, we are both you Penn Quakers. Uh, what, but, what, but I was not a mathematician. Uh, no, I, I went through communications. Um, and that's why we're podcasting now. But as a mathematician, what I'm actually fascinated about is on Geekscape, we talk a lot about genre storytelling. That's really what we do here. And you've found a, you've found a way into genre storytelling through 
mathematics in a, in, a, in a way. And I know that there's a lot of mathematics involved in Dungeons & Dragons. I, like you in middle school discovered uh, Dungeons & Dragons, uh, I believe, about a decade after uh, when you were discovering it. And in the 80s, it was still very much an exciting thing going into the 90s. Um, and then there was a shift, and the shift was, in a large part, you, where we were playing Dungeons & Dragons, I believe second edition at that point, going into the early 90s, and then suddenly everything's going into card-based gaming from 93 on. When I first got my, my first job, it was 1994-95, and it was at a comic book store in Austin. And Magic the Gathering was... It was a juggernaut. It, it was it was it was not a fad. It was something that just landed, uh, and it and it just took everything over. Uh, whether you were in a hobby shop or a comic book store, it became the thing. How do you how did you find a balance between how did the mathematician go into storytelling, or how did the storyteller go in, into math, what, what was the chicken and the egg on this thing, and, <laughs> and how have you balanced them in such an incredible way? Well, uh, I think I was in mathematics more because of my love of games than uh, I went into games uh, because of my mathematics. Uh, I, I did not think you could make a, a consistent living at games, and so I was going to teach math and research math. I, I and I love math, uh, and uh, uh, a lot of what drives me there is the same things which interest me in games, which is uh, I like uh, 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 thinking about these uh, structures, these worlds that games create, and that's uh, kind of similar to the mathematical uh, uh, constructions that, that uh, you study in mathematics. Um, so... Uh, I th I think what I really longed for was to be a a game academic. I really loved the study of games. Uh, I loved uh, researching the history of games and uh, uh, how they were played, and uh, and and so my uh, academics uh, sort of led me to this uh, to to this world of games. And I felt like I was uh, uh, it was a largely unexplored area because there weren't any academic programs in games. Yeah, I mean, I had to imagine that that field was pretty small. Uh, and I don't know if that's due to a lack of profitability, the, the video game uh, explosion of the early 80s or the arcades of the 70s hadn't really happened yet and people didn't really see a point to it. But, um, but I have to imagine that field started developing pretty quickly. I mean, just looking from a filmmaker standpoint to the films that were people were obsessing about in the early '80s, from War Games to Tron, it seemed like something that was very much uh, landing in the in in the zeitgeist, and then suddenly it's everywhere. How rapidly did you get swept up in game design? Was it easy to get into, or was it something where you're just knocking on doors constantly, saying, "Hey, I'm a game designer. Uh, this is my background." Uh, these are the games that I designed. You know, Magic: The Gathering supposedly goes back to uh, 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 you know decks that you were developing back in 1982, and it wouldn't see publication until 11 years later. How hard was it in this nascent field to to kind of get attention or traction? Uh, well, as I, as I said, uh, I, I didn't think you could make a consistent living at game design, so I was not knocking on doors. Mm -hmm. uh, I was uh, 
really had both my feet in uh, in teaching. Uh, the only reason I uh, ended up in game design, I think, is because a friend of mine, uh, Mike Davis, uh, fell in love with one of my games, Robo Rally, and I told him that he could uh, he could take ownership of half the game if he got it published, and. So he thought that was very generous, and uh, and he uh, began packaging it and sending it off to big companies around the world. And after seven years of trying to do that, he no longer thought it was a really generous offer. He thought it was uh, <laughs> perhaps a fair offer. Uh, but he he got me in touch with Wizards of the Coast, and uh, and uh, and that's when I uh, began. Uh, putting together this concept for trading card games and uh but but in the meantime I, it wasn't like i wasn't designing games i designed games because i love games not because i was trying to uh uh get uh, get them published there was uh, no industry i'm guessing like there the, that's like like steve jackson all that stuff it didn't exist correct i'm sorry it was it was like it was maybe milton bradley and that was about it like what did it look like in the, in oh, the late 70s early 80s was there a, was there an, even a nascent industry oh uh, uh there was a hobby industry it was uh, it was smaller steve jackson games for example mm-hmm. did exist mm-hmm. um and uh there was a uh, uh, fasa and uh um uh, tsr who did uh dungeon dragons dungeon yeah. dragons they were they were the big guys in american hobbies uh but there were lots of little hobby stores. Uh, uh, sorry, lots of little hobby game publishers, um, and uh, then some big hitters like Mattel and uh, Hasbro. In was it in when you first put out the those decks? And I'm thinking about your friend trying to sell this thing. Uh, is it almost as if you would put out an independent magazine or putting out an independent record where you're calling these shops and you're calling these places or showing up in person? To say, hey, do you mind carrying this on consignment and seeing how it does? Uh, that is a very that is a long game. Um, <laughs> no, no. Um, he he was uh, putting together prototypes and sending it to these companies, and mm-hmm. uh, and they were uh, generally saying uh, no. Uh, but sometimes they actually said yes. They we got paid money uh, to for Robo Rally, but then uh, a year later they'd say ah we can't really do it. They'd send it back to us. Hmm. So what is the so when you see something like when Wizards of the Coast finally says yes to Magic the Gathering, they finally say okay, we 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 know how to do this. We have a couple years under our belts, and we put out some games. Let's take on Magic the Gathering. Um, what what do you think the circumstances were that caused it to become such a juggernaut? To what I perceive almost immediately. It, I don't think it was almost immediately from where you were standing. What were some of the things that led to that uh, that giant explosion in nineteen in the mid nineties? Well, that's a uh, pretty hard to say, and I've of course given it a lot of thought. Mm. I think it, it it certainly hit right at the right time uh, at the uh, you know when the internet is just taking off and people are beginning to really network uh, across the world. Uh, it, it begin it, it makes it so it's possible to make uh, a community with this sort of thing much more easily. Uh, but uh, I, I think this really hit something that was missing from games, which is this massively distributed, uh, massively modular 
game. Uh, it was the first one of its type, and I think uh, uh, people really uh, liked the uh, exploration of uh, that sort of an environment. The trading, the swapping, uh, you you know, you could kind of just sit down and play rather than... In Dungeons & Dragons, it... Well, at least when I would play in middle school and high school, you had to, it was it was an afternoon. You couldn't just sit down and play. You had to really pick who you're playing with. You had to design everything steps ahead if you're a DM, and um, and and people couldn't just sit down and go for it. There had to be a bit of a of a story going on. So I is is it the is it the MTV of it all that in the larger culture? Coming out of the 80s, we have suddenly have a little bit of a shorter attention span. People want to have a quicker entertainment, whether or not you attribute to the to the video games or you attribute to the to the music videos of the Nickelodeon. But suddenly, you want to sit down and you want to have kind of an immediate entertainment experience. And then in the 90s, it seems like that Max Headroom kind of thing was starting to really hit, especially there in 91, 92, 93. Do you attribute any of it to that? Uh, it's it's hard to discount it, but uh, but uh, I I usually go in different uh, mm-hmm. directions. Uh, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, for example, it's as you say, it's 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 a pretty hard game to play. It takes a big investment. Uh, even even if you've done all the work, it's still an investment because it's a lot of energy to make that game fun. Sure, uh, it is. It's a wonderfully rewarding hobby, uh, but. It's a lot of work. Uh, a game like Magic is easier to get into um, in that sense. Uh, there is one thing that I sometimes point to with math, with uh, Magic, which is that uh, uh, I usually divide game players into two types broadly. There's uh, explorers and then there's honers. So explorers uh, like to learn games, and they like that uh, stage at the beginning where they're learning all sorts of big strategies and discovering things. So like in chess, that's sitting down, and uh, you begin playing, and you realize, oh, my pieces can protect each other. Oh, my pawn structure uh, has some importance. Uh, Oh, if I get this file free, that's really powerful. Um, But then after a while, the game is controlled by honers, and you have to learn... uh, books of openings and you have to study everybody's games and you're into this real minutia of uh, of, uh, uh, of improvement uh, and you see that in game after game after game uh, magic in some ways managed to sidestep that and make it so that the explorer could stay in the game for a long long time because it kept being refreshed with new things to explore and mm-hmm. so it wasn't immediately it wasn't quickly dominated by people who uh, were memorizing uh, the nth uh, uh, percentage point of, uh, of, of the, the profitability of various plays. Right. Um, did, it, did it shape how you saw the, the subsequent games? I mean, again, uh, the, the story, this world that you built, um, you know, the beauty of it, uh, I'm I'm still kind of fascinated how the mathematician and the storyteller are are, are married, and um, in suddenly was especially with the you know Wizards of Coast acquisition of TSR, it kind of felt like a passing of the torch. Uh, having witnessed it myself as a Dungeons and Dragons fan, uh, you know I romanticized TSR. I romanticized it on the spines of all those dungeon manuals and in Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, 
you know, adventures. Um, how did it feel uh, when Wizards of the Coast then acquired TSR and you were a big part of their ability to do so? Well, it felt, it felt pretty exciting because uh, D&D was such an important part of my youth. And mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, TSR was not in good shape in those days. And so the, uh, uh, the uh, ability to step in and try to uh, get it back on its feet was, was nice. Um, and and uh, we put a lot of work into, uh, I think, a third and a half edition was uh, 3.5 is what I, I think I worked on 3.5 and uh, I'm very happy with uh, what we did back then. Uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, uh, it was mixed in the sense that, uh, in the sense that I don't like seeing something that was so formative being in bad shape, but it was nice in that we were able to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, you helped save Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> and now Dungeons and Dragons seems to be everywhere. <laughs> I mean, you go to Gen Con, you go to Dragon Con, you go into these conventions or even around the world from cosplayers to gamers to events to people who make, uh, you know, extra add-ons. I, um, I had the, crea- the, the, the creator and designer of Dwarven Forge uh, on our Comic Con episode uh, two, three weeks ago. I mean, just... And I play with Dun- with, Dr- with Dwarven Forge just beyond Dungeons and Dragons purely, but all of the the industry that has gone beyond it, the second and third hand stuff. It, it's it's pretty incredible how in in just a few years you guys turned that ship around. Yeah, uh, well, D and D is such. A great game. Uh, as I said, it was what I uh, what made me into a game designer. Um, but but it it was more than that. It what made me uh, really interested in games as a field. Uh, when I first found D anD uh, I was blown away at how different it was from any other game I had ever seen. It broke all the rules that I had ascribed to games. And uh, so playing that, I was thinking, Wow! If this existed then what else could exist in the world of games? Games was uh, incredible. So, In your book, The Characteristic of Games, does it go back to that core level? Like When, when you see the world, and, and I'm pretty fascinated by how you see the world, when you see the world, what triggers you down that path of, and, and, and let's, let's talk about half-truth half as well, what, what, what's the thing that kind of pings in your brain that says, okay, here's a thread here, and I'm going to follow this thread all the way down to, to a fully formed game? You know, as a storyteller myself, what starts you down that path? What thread do you start pulling out, and what are the things that inspire you in, in that first moment? Uh, it, it varies a lot. Uh, sometimes it's uh, very mathematical. Like I, I think of a little uh, mathematical game, and I uh, try to see what it, what things you can do with it, and what uh, that models in real life. Uh, um, but other times I'm looking at something in real life, uh, uh, or in some sort of fantastic situation, and trying to think of how I would model that with a game and uh, get people into that situation. Uh, what are some of the games that were math, were born in math? That when you look back on, on your in, in your resume, what are some of the games that you said, okay, that definitely started in almost like a Sudoku level of purity, where I said, okay, these are all the pieces and how they fall together, and then I have to build a world around them. Well, uh, 
King of Tokyo is probably a good example of that. Uh, King of Tokyo was uh, an exercise in how you would take uh, Yahtzee and make it interactive. Uh, uh, Yahtzee, I think, is an excellent game. Uh, uh, its only flaw, and uh, uh, it's not really a flaw, it's just a characteristic, is that it is not very interactive. It's, uh, it's pretty much a solo game, uh, and uh, uh, you play it parallel with other people. And so uh, uh, I began to think about how to make this interactive, and uh, I came up with this sort of abstract structure, and then didn't know what flavor to attach to it, and uh, uh, eventually settled on this uh, monsters knocking down Tokyo flavor. <laughs> you're a big kaiju fan, I'm guessing. If, 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 oh, if yeah. you're on Geekscape, I'm guessing you're a big kaiju fan. <laughs> um, and now, something like Half Truth, you saw it, and you saw trivia in the world, and then something about the trivia. Uh, you talk to me about how this game works, and in, in, in Ken Jennings's. Uh, involvement, like how how does this work backwards to maybe something that you see in the world, the popularity of trivia, or being yourself, like you said, uh, a, a fan of trivia, even subconsciously, and then saying, okay, I'm thinking about this a lot. Let me get to what I do best and start attributing a score structure and a point structure to this, and and putting some math into it. Talk to me about the process of of half truth and how that came together. So, so with Half Truth, uh, as I mentioned, I read this game, this uh, book, Brainiac, by Ken Jennings, and I was swept up in his uh, love of trivia, and I realized I'd been thinking about trivia in a way that wasn't entirely accurate. Uh, I had thought about it as a field where. Uh, an entertainment where uh, people either knew the answer or they didn't, and uh, where if you weren't good with trivia, you uh, really didn't have a chance. Yes, uh, I I believe that I'm good at trivia. I believe that I know a lot of really <laughs> really weird things, and, and and some useful, some not useful. But but this is Geekscape. Like we're all here because we collect a lot of extra data. Um, but then the actual. I actually get pretty stressed out with trivia. And even though I'll go to a trivia night, I don't always like to participate. You know, so so when I see the idea of, of trivia, um, I think I agree with you. I, I think of myself as somebody who knows it or doesn't, but just the idea of it, I don't quite see the point. Tell me how you went further beyond this, uh, the um, that first observation. So... He, in his book, he gave a lot of examples of uh, types of trivia, uh, which reminded me of experiences I had had where I didn't know the answer, but I was able to come up with an intelligent guess, and it was right, and that was very satisfying. It's almost um, like the SAT when they when they want you to uh, what's the when you're taking the SAT and they they tell you to answer every question regardless of whether or not it's you have the definite answer because. The correct answer is worth one point, and when you miss it, it's minus one quarter. So if you went one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, you would still come out at a zero. And if you're able to hedge your bets, you might actually right. You if, know, you can, if you get can a, uh, get if you can eliminate two, if you can eliminate one, then you have a better chance of scoring that one point. Absolutely, and uh, I definitely uh, use that in half truth uh, quite a bit. So, uh, in order to make this a, a, an egalitarian experience, uh, there were a couple things I did. The first was I wanted everybody to play every question. Uh, a, uh, a, a trivia game in which uh, you, some of the worst evenings I had had were ones where I was off my game and I couldn't 
really compete uh, for one reason or another. And then in the whole evening, the, the one question I knew I was the only person in a room of 20 people to know was somebody else's question. And, mm. uh, and so, uh, and that, that's very frustrating. And that, uh, um, that was something I wanted to avoid. So I knew that in half truth, we wanted to make it so everybody played every question. Uh, and the, the second thing was, uh, I wanted to make it so that if you really, if you didn't know the answer, you still had a chance. Um, and so I wanted to make the questions multiple choice. Uh, and I began out with this, uh, uh, idea that there were six answers and one of them was true but quickly went to uh, a much more interesting area, which is there's six answers and three of the answers are true. Oh, wow. Um, and so what this allows you to do is by uh, eliminating, so you begin out blind, you've got a 50-50 chance. Uh, but almost always you can uh, get some intuitive idea that one of them is more likely than the other, or you can cross off some of the answers and improve your chances, just like you were saying with the SATs. And uh, this uh, leads to a really uh, 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 satisfying game experience uh, for a lot of trivia questions because, because something you might not have any uh, real knowledge about, you still know something about, typically, and, uh, and, and can use that. Uh, um, and, and in order to really bring this home, I made it so that uh, um, you, if you were a real expert, uh, expert trivia nerd, uh, you could guess two or three of the answers. If you got any of them wrong, uh, you didn't get any profit for this uh, for this uh, question. Uh, but if you got uh, more than one right, you would get a little bit of a benefit. The reason why it's a little bit of a benefit is because I want to make it so that people who uh, that people got almost all the benefit just by getting one of the answers. And what was uh, Ken's involvement beyond just being a brainiac and being a, an expert at trivia, as his world records uh, prove? <laughs> well, he's a, a, an excellent writer, and uh, that's why uh, I made this game. And so, a couple is he still involved? But he's still involved in the planning stages beyond just being the impetus for. Uh, for getting you uh, excited about the concept, absolutely, right? absolutely. What what happened was uh, after reading this book uh, a couple years later, uh, which was maybe eight years ago, uh, mm-hmm. I uh, approached him and said, "Look, I got this uh, game. It was inspired by a book. Do you want to be a part of it?" So uh, he joined me for a game uh, evening, and uh, and we played it a few times. And uh, uh, he actually uh, uh, won the first game which is no surprise. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the second game, he did not win. And, uh, and uh, he uh, really liked that, uh, that, that this was a game where, where his trivia knowledge gave him an advantage, but it, uh, it was still possible for people who didn't know as much to win. Um, so he uh, became a partner in this, and uh, and he's made about half the questions. He's uh, edited them. He really helped us uh, with our style in the game. Uh, teach us what makes us what makes a fun question, and uh, what sort of questions to avoid. And uh, and uh, he's been a, a great help. In uh, it's almost like I made the hardware to the game, which was sure. the rules, and uh, he was the lead programmer. 
I have to imagine that him losing in a trivia contest as he did in that second round to you was like the karate master in the movie who never gets hit, finally getting punched and saying he'd forgotten how it felt to bleed. <laughs> you know? And, and now, now he's pumped. Now he's got some competition and he's, and he's invested all over again. Because yeah, I, his, his streak is, on Jeopardy was ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, no, it it, it is. Uh, uh, unfortunately, I, I wasn't the one who uh, beat him, so uh, <laughs> I was just well, the game. You have designed you have designed a process in a game through yeah. which that is always a pos- There's always that window, and 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 I think that this sounds like a, a game that I would be really into because, as I was trying to say earlier, and I was I was I was kind of going caveman style and explaining it is I check out very very quickly in trivia nights, even though I. Like most of you geekscapists, I do know a lot of the the trivia answers, but I I'm I put that pressure on myself that if I can't you know that if I'm only going to be really great at a couple of those questions, I'm not going to invest the whole night into it or get myself really worked up because trivia can be really competitive as you can see in a lot of the uh, local bars and restaurants that have added trivia nights as successful parts of their calendars. Uh, people get really into this. Oh yeah, this is yeah. a really, really popular pastime. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, and uh, over the years, I've done that more and more. Uh, uh, of course, this was designed, as I said, uh, uh, ten years ago. But since then, I've really uh, um, uh, done more and more of it. And really enjoy that. I think that those those environments are really good uh, when you're on a team. Because uh, yes. then, then, then you don't have to be uh, uh, the sole one responsible for knowing all this stuff. Uh, I could never do what Ken did. <laughs> I could never do what Ken did. My head would explode. It'd be like scanners. It would never. You'd see me on that. You would see me on national television and be like, "Mommy, this guy's head just exploded on television." <laughs> um, it, it, there's just that that kind of pressure, and I don't know what it. I mean, it's trivia and it's trivial. You're you know beyond cash or whatever you're going to win at the bar it really this the, for some reason when the pressure is on the stakes i i would rather be at a basketball court or running or doing some of the thing that i feel like my chances are a little more comfortable uh and the community is a little more my thing i mean but then you go to these events and now there's organizations like geeks who drink and i think i think that's the name of the organization that sometimes go, uh, that that provides bars across the country with different uh, trivia cards and trivia uh, programs, and uh, I think they're called Geeks Who Drink, and um, and I kind of like Half Truth more because because uh, because you can look for your window, you can look for you, you can kind of sit in the back, like as I do in trivia nights, and say, okay, well everybody's gunning for it. Let me let me let me kind of hedge my my bets here, and let me start eliminating one or two of these. And you know you can swing every time at bat, which I think is is fun for everybody, as you said. Um, how did Studio Seventy One get involved? You guys, uh, they're helping develop the game. They're helping with the Kickstarter. They're helping uh, publish. Uh, yes, uh, this is my first uh, big game done through Kickstarter, and uh, I usually so I usually work with publishers. Uh, but uh, a game like this, uh, building a community is uh, pretty important. A, a community, of course, is important for any game, but, uh, but a, a, a trivia-style game in particular, and in particular because the questions you make, you want to be as broad as possible. So going through this process is going to help us get feedback from 
the community and uh, find out where uh, perhaps we had some blind spots in our trivia questions and uh, correct that in the future and uh, and and see what sort of uh, 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 particular trivia interests uh, uh, are out there. Uh, and Studio 71 is, uh, has a good track record of, uh, of doing that and uh, uh, managing these communities and uh, getting attention out there. And of course, just getting attention for your game is super important these days because there's, uh, uh, as we talked about earlier, it's, it's a game renaissance and it's uh, such a crowded marketplace uh, that uh, people people's time is really valuable and it's really hard to get attention uh for your game and get a, you know get people to give it a fair shake, so uh, I think they'll they'll really help us uh, uh, get that fair shake. We are in a we are in a strange time. I mean, um, you know, long form storytelling, and you know, for, whether it be on television with something like Game of Thrones, uh, or what you see happening in an episodic movie <laughs> like the Marvel series uh, on the big screen. Has I believe also lent itself to the popularity of Dungeons and Dragons, and there's a place that uh, here in Burbank called Geeky Tees. There's a lot of different hobby places here in, in Los Angeles, and it's where you go to see your friends, and you sit around and you tell long form stories, um, and it's it's pretty incredible. Uh, I think, and I think that Kickstarter and these crowdfunding campaigns have lent themselves to the discovery of more of this. I mean, people are hungry for this, for not only long-form storytelling, but but communities that sprout up around uh, Kickstarters. Because like a crowdfunding campaign, you're, you're also discovering a community. People are invested in the creators, and having you and Ken on board has to bring all your fans with them. Uh, and and it's pretty incredible. Yeah, no, we're looking forward to it. I'm uh, uh, excited to see how it goes and uh, what sort of a, a, a following uh, we we manage to get. Uh, uh, I, th- I think it'll be very good for the game. Well, I'm going to ask you one or two more questions, and then I really want to ask a few Geekscapist questions because we have a community here, and they were pretty excited to ask you a few specific questions about everything from Magic Gathering Arena to Artifact and, and some of the things you've worked on. Uh, but just personally for myself, uh, I like talking to storytellers about where they maybe felt like they could have taken a left when they took a right. And were there any times in, in your career where, where you maybe hit a bump and said, whoa, how do I recover from this? Were there any failures or moments where you just said, okay, I don't know what tomorrow is and what I just experienced hurt pretty bad. What inside of you got you back on track or got you going to where we are now? Uh, well, cer- certainly uh, I've uh, changed the way I think about games uh, a lot. Uh, I was uh, fortunate to uh, land uh, Magic as my first game, and so that sort of uh, made it so that uh, there was nothing that can, uh, you know, no failure that can turn me away from games because I feel like Getting getting more than magic would be incredible, right? It's mm-hmm. just it's, it's something incredible in the sense that it that it really can't happen. Uh, and um, but uh, certainly uh, some of the examples of uh, of, of, of failures, have, well, things like uh, 
I've had I've had a lot of games which have uh, which which I think are great, and uh, I I uh, send them to a publisher, and they languish for a long period of time, and then I get them back and I send them out again and again and again, and uh, um, uh, and each time I uh, take that as an opportunity to improve the game because even though I think the game is is perfect uh, when it goes out. The publisher has some problem with it, and that broad view is something I have to pay attention to. Sometimes I disagree with the publisher, but very often there's the seeds of something which, uh, uh, even if it was adequate before, I can improve on that. Uh, that, and and so you get a game like uh, well, like King of Tokyo again, which uh, went through several publishers, and uh, and and I, I couldn't understand what. They weren't seen with the game, but each time it came back to me, I honed it a little more, and eventually got it to Yellow, the current publisher, uh, and they saw what it was. But it was also improved by all these different exposures and the pre- uh, all these different rejections in the past, uh, because I didn't just pass it on. Uh, so, I think it's important for the geekscapists out there who are filmmakers or writers or artists in their own right to uh, think about failure as feedback and maybe failure is just a word that we should get rid of and uh, obviously you can trip in life and you can uh, have rejection but uh, I think what you're illustrating here is that you took failure not really as failure but as feedback yes and yes. kept marching on and and uh, I, I, I try as much as possible to be open-minded to the fact that uh, that uh, uh, that these uh, uh, rejections are are uh, I mean they're they're representing a valid point of view uh, mm-hmm. uh, and and the fact that they didn't see what I see in this game is uh, there's something wrong in the game or the way I presented it that is preventing them from seeing it um, yeah. and and sometimes it's not what I think it is to begin with and I can uh, and I can get it there uh, but but either way this uh, this is an opportunity. So, uh, are you involved at all with the animated series that's coming out? The uh, Magic the Gathering one that's in development? I, I, I am not. I'm uh, waiting uh, uh, anxiously to see what uh, what goes on with it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, we we uh, we have it's being done at a studio that's a, that's a couple friends of ours. So uh, over at Octopi, so we're going to try and get some of those people on the on the show for you. If you're a new time geekscapist listening because of uh, Richard being on the show, there will be more Magic the Gathering coming down the pipe in the coming months and, and as that, that cartoon series develops. Um, okay, so speaking of the Geekscape community, uh, our friend Derek Krenevelt has a question about Artifact. He loves it. He says, Artifact had a huge amount of hype, especially after PAX last year, but has struggled immensely since its release last fall. I don't know if that's true or not, but he says, uh, it has an incredibly solid foundation, a popular IP in Dota, and, and uh, the likes of industry changer Valve behind it. Why do you think the game is uh, is having a spotty uh, history fighting an audience? Is it? I, I don't really know at all, Richard. But oh, this, oh you know, no, but he, he's he's exactly right. It, it uh, uh, to say it struggled is an understatement. Uh, so so that is exactly correct, and uh, it's very uh, uh, gratifying to hear that he enjoys it. Uh, uh, oh, he we, loves it. We. Uh, we have. I, I have a lot of confidence in the in the game as it was presented. I do not think that uh, that it failed because that it that it got off to its start because of its game design. Uh, um, it had uh, you know some people who 
very much know what they're doing, uh, have played it for a long time, and really enjoyed it. So I, I think it's a it's a really uh, a, a solid game and uh, i think uh, valve was uh, excellent partners with it uh the the uh, spotty start uh I, I think was a community relationship issue and a uh, um and and also uh, a, 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 an artifact pardon the pun of uh the way <laughs> the way things are reviewed these days it's a uh, um, as mentioned earlier people's time is precious and it's really hard to give things uh uh, a fair amount of attention because there's so much there to look at and and uh, 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 grabbing your attention, and so um, if this launches and and uh, uh, twenty people play it uh, and uh, 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 fifteen people aren't the target audience uh, um, and they review it uh, in negative terms, then other people who uh, might be the target audience, uh, they see the negative review and they don't give it a, they don't give it the time it needs to real, you know, to realize that actually it is made for them. Yeah. I try not to review many things on Geekscape as a, as a creator myself. We, we, we sell, we have t-shirts, and I can send you one that just says "Don't hate, create," because I feel like criticism has tur- can turn into a bully structure, uh, especially online. But ultimately, I think that if you are going out to become a reviewer, I think it's healthy to think of something to say. Hey, this is for fans of blank, which Artifact clearly with Derek uh, has found at least himself and a bit of an audience. Do you, I mean, do you think that maybe some of it is platform? Is this something that the mobile version? Uh, might find a, a, an audience that's a little bit more conducive to to what the design of the game was. Uh, it, it's it's possible. Uh, um, a, a lot of the uh, negative uh, attitude with the launch had to do with people who had axes to grind because they wanted Valve to be doing other things. Yeah, Half Life Three. I, I hate to tell you guys, you're not getting Half Life Three. Right. <laughs> I hate to tell you, <laughs> they're making so much money off of Steam. Why are they going to make Half Life Three? Go out, make your own Half Life Three. Come back, we will enjoy it. And good luck with Half Life Three, guys. I'm sorry, I hate to be the the, the person to say that, but a lot, I think a lot of people say that. I don't know if Half Life Three is in the cards anymore. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> it it's impossible for me to say. I know. I mean, Valve. Is is a a black box in a lot of ways. They try to keep to themselves, but uh, but the way they they work, if there's something which interests the people there, they will do it. And so uh, it, it's always a possibility because in Geekscape, I don't mean to be like that. I thought the same thing about Ghostbusters three, and they're <laughs> filming Ghostbusters three. So so yeah. so listen, if there's one thing that longtime Geekscapists know, it's uh, Jonathan has had to go back and be like, oh yeah. Well, hope you guys are enjoying Half Life Three. I guess I was wrong on that one. <laughs> uh, well, I hope that 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 it finds its audience uh, both uh, in the long run and also in the the digital version. Yeah. Um, so. Let's see. We got uh, Derek continues and says, "Key Forge is his favorite trading card game." And even his uh, fiance, who thinks that they're for dorks, likes it. <laughs> um, Keith, he seems it's beloved and popular, and even though it, it's been out less than a year, he sees it talked about everywhere. The unique deck system is affordable and uh, addicting and almost uh, takes away options for a secondary market. 
uh, which is smart. If, you, if, if it's affordable, then this, yeah, the secondary market doesn't have to sprout up. Is Keyforge more successful than you anticipated it to be? And what are the main reasons that you think the game has found so much success so early? Uh, I, is it more successful? Uh, I don't know. He's, he asked if, you, if, if, it, if it exceeded your expectations. I, 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 I think it probably did because I, I usually try to come in with muted expectations, but uh, I always hope that my game finds my games find uh, a, a big audience. I like to, uh, uh, I, I, as a creator, I like to share with a lot of people. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I had this concept, and so it's been very gratifying to see so many people get something out of it uh, with uh, Keyforge. Um, and uh, what was the second part of the question? Yeah, what do you think the main reasons were that it, it, it got traction so early? Was there, was there a built-in audience for it? What, did it no. Was there, it timing? That was, that, there was definitely not a built-in audience for it, uh, uh, because, which I know because we actually uh, had a lot of trouble finding playtesters for it because hmm. it, it really isn't a trading card game, uh, even though it's sort of uh, dressed up as one. And so uh, getting playtesters for it, you look to people who like this sort of game uh, and you find uh, people who play trading card games. But then a lot of them, a, a lot of them, didn't like it because you couldn't build your deck and this set of people is uh selected for uh enjoying building decks but sure. uh keyforge is built in part because i don't want to build decks <laughs> i just want to play the game and mm-hmm. uh and uh i really miss the old days where where i was handed a deck and i could play and uh, i didn't feel like uh i needed to look up what the best deck designs were and follow that uh uh, my deck was my deck and i tried to do as well as i could with it and uh and so that's what i was after and i think it really is something very different than has uh been out there before and that is why it's uh managed to sort of get some attention yeah maybe the plug and play nature of it is what is what led to it to, to kind of go wildfire um George Pepe wants to know if you can get him some codes for Magic the Gathering Arena. I don't, I don't know, George, if this is the forum for that. <laughs> um, Ian Rainey asks, what are some of the things that you think make a good game? And I think that that, that points back to the, your book, The Characteristic of Games. Uh, I don't know if I don't know if you've if you've developed a blanket just response for a question like that. But well, I actually. Uh, uh, uh... Uh, what makes a good game, of course, will vary a lot from player to player because people are and community to community because they're looking for different things. But for me personally, uh, uh, my favorite games they get better over time, and so uh, a, a lot of times people think of games like books or movies where uh, where they get used up or at least the second viewing or second reading is very different than the first. Um, but uh, with a really good game, the more you play, the better it gets. And uh, I-, I love that attribute of games. And it's one of the things that, uh, that I, I can't, th- these days where there's so much taking my attention, uh, I really have to uh, 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 force myself to get out of the habit of play a game once, play it twice, then go on to something else. And, uh, and uh, because, because I think you're undermining the very best things in a game, which is that the better you know it, the better it is. Did you ever think that the expansion packs that, that have gone on for Magic for the last 30 years, did you, was that something that was 
extensively designed from the beginning or has it just gone well beyond your expectations? I imagine it must have, right? Uh, yeah, it certainly uh, uh, went well beyond where I expected it to go. I knew that when Magic came out, that many games I loved weren't particularly successful, so I didn't uh, um, I didn't expect anything different from Magic. So its success right out of the bat, even though I had confidence it was a good game, uh, I didn't feel feel like it was guaranteed. And uh, where it went, of course, it went far beyond what I anticipated. In the expansion packs, was it, is there was there some element to some of the expansion packs that felt like uh, like you were course correcting or fixing elements of the game? I am very I, I do not have experience with Magic the Gathering. I have friends who are very competitive with it, um, and obviously there are expansion packs that people really love, and then there are expansion packs that that people said, oh, this this wave wasn't as successful or wasn't my thing. Um, were there some expansion packs that were designed to course correct? Were there some expansion packs that were designed to uh, kind of reintroduce the game or refresh the game in, in some ways? Uh, certainly, uh, there are many expansions that were designed to uh, uh, change elements that we had done before, either mm. uh, reduce the complexity or uh, make it so strategies that had fallen by the wayside were ba- you know returned to the game. Um, very early on, uh, we spent a lot of time uh, figuring out what sort of things you look for in an expansion. You know, uh, what sort of players there are, and what they look for, and try to make sure that uh, uh, expansions have things that appeal to a broad range of people. Um, I just I love the idea that you're that you're you're at it. It's like you're just building this world, and in doing so. You're giving a little bit of course correction or revisions to a game that is just so fluid and has so many moving parts. I mean, the plate spinning amount in this, I'm just like, your team and yourself must be all uh, geniuses. <laughs> um, and you do enjoy playing trading card games yourself, correct? You, you love them as, as much as you did back in the day. Uh, I, I do like trading card games a lot, although uh, the way I've played them has changed. Mm. Um, back in the day, uh, I, I had the patience to build decks, um, but more and more over time, I'd rather uh, draft them or take pre-made decks because I'm more interested in the uh, play of the game than the meta play of what deck do I play. Hmm. So something um, like a digital randomizer might be something that in a digital version of your game might uh, might be appealing where you turn the game on and it gives you a deck that, that's designed for various strategies just off the bat. Yeah. Uh, for example, uh, I, I play Hearthstone. I, I uh, in, uh, uh, was uh, uh, sort of a fan when it came out, uh, but but over the years they've just done better and better with the game they've made it broader and and just more interesting and uh figured out how to how to uh, really bring out what's fun in that game but my the way i like to play almost exclusively is arena which is where you draft the cards uh i love arena because you sit down you play you build your deck you play, and and you get a different deck every time as far as building a deck and playing not so much of a fan uh it's fun, and I can understand why a lot of people like it, but that's uh, you know uh, uh, not where I am these days. 
plus the, the for as a comic book collector myself the collectability of it is what appealed to me with magic is oh it's like collecting baseball cards and you want the in in, in not maybe not even so much as building the deck but i mean some of the artwork and, and some of the design of some of these cards there were some that are just beautiful um donovan alberling has a question uh saying that you have a reputation as a perfectionist uh richard um which unpublished game which I'm sorry. Which published game? Which which game that we have access to went through the most iterations uh, prior to release, and what changed about them? Which one changed most drastically? Ooh. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of my games have uh, uh, changed a lot uh, uh, from when I first made them to when they were published. Uh, I I, I kind of want to say uh, Hive Mind. Um, which is probably not entirely accurate, but uh, but uh, um, Hive Mind, the basic concept of the game was published first as uh, What Were You Thinking uh, with uh, Wizards and Hasbro back in, I don't know, 98 maybe. Um, and uh, I felt like the game uh, had a lot more potential than the audience it reached. Uh, uh, and and uh, so uh, after years of tinkering, uh, came up with uh, uh, the, the, the Hive Mind, which is published by Calliope these days. And, uh, and, and uh, uh, I, I think that that improved the design a lot. Do you, do you, uh, have you abandoned games? Have you said this, 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 this puzzle, this, this one, it doesn't seem like, like you, you're of the mind to put a puzzle down. It, it, has there been a game that you're like, okay, this one, this one got away from me, um, and, uh, and I don't know if I can breathe new life into it? I absolutely put, put the puzzles down, but I don't abandon them. Uh, yeah. I've, got, I've got a closet filled with uh, designs, and I return to that often, so there's no design in there that I would say is dead, but uh, it may not be uh, uh, completed in the way I first envisioned, uh, I might take. Uh, I might finish it the way I first envisioned, uh, with uh, a little bit of distance and uh, a little more skill uh, applied uh, a, a year or two later. Or I might just take pieces of it and put it into a, a game further down the road. It's pretty incredible. I was listening to Neil Gaiman talk about the Cemetery book, uh, and when he first tried writing the book, he admitted. Now, in in, in hindsight, he said, "When I first tried attempting that book." I wasn't a writer that needed to write that book. I wasn't a writer that was able to write that book. And and to have somebody of, of Neil Gaiman's stature say something like that or have somebody of your stature say, hey, I've designed all these games and they've been loved by millions, uh, to have those ones, I was like, okay, I haven't quite cracked that nut yet. It, it's just fascinating. And and, uh, and we just hope you stay healthy. We just hope <laughs> you... <laughs> We, we 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 hope you're 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 getting your rep in. Okay, um, so so that is another Donovan question about unsolved games. Okay, last question. This one comes from Sam Nash Green. What was the thought process behind Slivers? Uh, well, Slivers, Slivers, I think were the f- first uh, creature type in Magic that really uh, um, played in a very modular way with the concept of uh, modifying the creature itself like people responded very well to uh uh things like goblin decks and the goblins have cards which modify goblins and so you get these uh synergies among all the goblins but uh uh having that distilled down to one creature type that uh 
that is all about adding extra powers to that creature type uh, is like taking uh, the tribal uh, uh, creature type deck and distilling it down to the most exciting parts. Um, uh, Slivers was, uh, uh, I think that was the uh, idea of uh, Mike Elliott, uh, who was a designer of magic back in the day. So it, it wasn't my concept, but, uh, but it was a, an interesting idea. That's great. Uh, and I love that you're receptive to that kind of collaboration. Uh, it, it definitely says a lot. Richard, thank you so much for taking an hour with me here on Geekscape. I'm, uh, again, completely fascinated by your ability to marry right left, right and left brain and just uh, look at things from different perspectives and welcome in new perspectives from those collaborators and from your experiences. I think it's incredible. And it makes me very, very, very excited about Half-Truth. Uh, and your collaboration with Ken Jennings and Studio 71 and everybody involved. Um, this is the kind of trivia I will actually play. I'm not a trivia guy, <laughs> and this sounds like a trivia game that I'm really excited about. Well, uh, thanks for the interest. It's been a lot of fun talking about it. Oh, man, thank you so much. I also want to thank Cat uh, uh, Jones, your, uh, your publicist, for putting this together. Um, Geekscape is the game. is called Half-Truth. The Kickstarter is live now. Definitely Google it um, and contribute. Uh, we, I would love to challenge each and every one of you Geekscapists at Comic-Con next year, and maybe Richard will join us down in San Diego, uh, to, to play a couple games of Half-Truth. Um, this has been a lot of fun, Richard. Thank you so much, and if you need anything, Geekscape is right here for you. Oh, thanks a lot. I thought that conversation went swimmingly. What did you think, Geekscapists? Jump on whatever podcatcher you're listening to this on and please leave us a five-star review. That really helps our visibility. It helps us uh, gain more Geekscapists. More audience means bigger guests, means more guests, means more episodes, more opportunities, and more excitement for you Geekscapists. Uh, if you want to leave us feedback the old-fashioned way, go ahead and email me at jonathan at geekscape.net, or you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just search for Geekscape. You'll find us, and uh, join our groups, and maybe follow us, and then send us a message and be like, hey, I really enjoyed that episode uh, that you did with Richard, and um, I'm looking forward to more. I'm looking forward to more to Geekscapists. I'm super excited about a lot of the stuff that's going on um, here at Geekscape behind the scenes. We're finishing up some projects that you're going to see very soon. We're working on some new ones. We are... I mean, you may think that all we're doing is putting together some podcasts. And hopefully you listen to some of our other podcasts. But there's more to it than that, and we're doing some pretty cool stuff, uh, whether they be more film projects or new media projects or live events uh we are working on all of those things that i just listed um big shout out to matt kelly co-host of the horror movie night podcast and also uh the person who runs our podcast network i sent matt the audio um for this episode because richard and i um recorded them separately he matched them together he cleaned it up and he made it sound as beautiful as possible, and I thought he did a great job. So, Matt Kelly, you are the MVP of this episode, and i got to give a shout-out to you, too, for listening. That's right, you Geekscape listeners. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, This is Geekscape, and we're going to have a brand-new episode for you next week. So, share, subscribe, and bye Nara, Geekscapists. You're listening to the Geekscape Network. 